0: If you haven't been keeping up with us, if you're just kind of jumping in, or you kind of been in and out, uh, we have journeyed through the first five books, uh, first five chapters uh, in the book of Acts, and that's where we're going. We're just kind of walking through um, this this um, this picture that we got that the that, that, that doctor Luke um, wrote uh, for the church, kind of capturing what the church, uh, how its early beginnings uh, came about, and what was going on. And at this point, where we're going to be in our text today, the church has become an, an an amazing movement of God it, it has been it has been advancing it has been multiplying it's a huge deal um, it, it hasn't grown outside of Jerusalem yet uh, the church is still concentrated to that one city uh, but but uh, it would it would be said that around this time about this point uh, that the number would be around 10 to 15,000 people as part of the Church of Jerusalem and that's kind of where it was at and so you could it was just really kind of gaining momentum and where 10 or 15,000 people collect in one spot um, you tend to kind of pay attention to what's going on there and so that's one of the ways that they were they were growing and they were moving and as we move forward, Uh, What we're going to see here uh, from this point forward after today, we're going to start seeing the church rapidly advance and move outside of Jerusalem, outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's going to start now moving into the region of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth from this point um, after today. And so the question um, that's kind of obvious that we should be asking if we're kind of paying attention, if we're looking at what's going on in Scripture, is, is like, what's causing this kind of growth? Like, what's, what's making the church advance and multiply and grow like this? Um, Blake, why don't, why don't we see this kind of growth here? Like, what's going on in the church that just, in these, in these few days that the church has, has existed, even even after one sermon preached, that, that 3,000 or more would gather and, and become part of the church? And now, just a, a little time after that, they're upwards of, of nearly 15,000 strong. What in the world is causing this kind of growth? Because never in history has there been a movement. Never in history has there been a religious faith. Never in history was there a belief system or a political effort or, or any means achieved uh, such a strong influence in, in, in such an important time in an important culture. Right. This was all, it, like the timing was impeccable for what God was doing right here um, and, and, and no, other, no other effort has has done this, um, as did Christianity, without the aid of some kind of force, right? Without the aid of some kind of uh, a military force or, or cultural prestige or, or someone uh, in power. Like, you, you, can, you can influence and move with that. But this, this was just kind of a grassroots thing. And, and there wasn't really any important people. And they weren't powerful. And they weren't, like, they didn't have a lot of military might. But they were growing as if they did. And, and, and so it was catching... Traction in Christianity. Here's the deal: it's it's different from these other movements in, in the fact that it, it didn't um, it didn't gain its influence by conquest. It didn't gain its influence by putting the right um, the right political leader in place. Like that's not how it gained its influence. It didn't try to it didn't try to overpower anybody. Um, or conquer anybody, or to set up a political figure. Um, they had no congressmen. Uh, they had no people of influence in their circle. Like these guys, I mean, in, in, in Acts, what we'll learn is like the the the, 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 the elite people, the the smart people uh, in the city would listen to these guys, and they would just be they would just be like freaking out because they was like these guys are speaking as if they're educated, and we know they're not, they're not even educated. They're not even smart people. Um, and so this is this is the leaders of this movement, and I love it. This is exactly how God would do this kind of stuff, right? Why did, why did God choose Israel for his people? Why did he choose them to be his people when all there was all these other nations that are so much stronger and so much bigger and they had so many more uh, resources? Just for that reason. He picks the small. He picks the weak. He picks those uh, who are cast off, right? And so we see that here in the church. And, and what we have here is just a group of everyday people. Just everyday blue-collar people who are just walking around changing the world every you know every word they say every encounter they have just going to talk about Jesus and let the spirit just kind of radically change this neighborhood and this city and this world how how were they doing that like do you ask yourself the question how did how did this happen up, up to this point? I'll say partly uh, it was because of the profile of the guy that we're going to take a look at today, like the church had this profile about them. This the guy that we're going to look at today, Stephen uh, was 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 one who we we met him a, a couple of verses a couple of yeah a couple of verses back in chapter six, um, but the profile of this guy was the normal way of Christianity, and we're going to get to see what normal Christianity looks like when we get to take a look at Stephen. And so you want to ask how did the church gain momentum? How did it, with no power, no influence, no military, no political figure, how in the world did it spread like it did? How did it gain so much influence? It was because of the profile of of, of, uh, Stephen here. It was, it was this guy and, and those who he was with. It was one of these men that we had met whenever the, the, uh, the church was kind of internally having some struggles um, that, that really at the root of it was kind of like racism. And, it, and it, it fleshed itself out in the way the widows were being cared for. The Hellenists would come to, to the leaders of the church and they would say, Hey, look, you know, the, the, the church is doing a really good job at taking care of the, 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 the Jewish widows, uh, but we feel like we're being neglected. We're not getting treated the, the same way, and, and we need our daily distribution just like they do. And so in in that, like that wasn't, um, the the apostles, they kind of heard that, they listened and they addressed the situation by saying, okay, church, let's get together and I want you to pick seven men from above, from from among you uh, who are just of good repute, who love Jesus, who love to serve, uh, who's just grounded in the gospel and we'll put them in that role of making sure that everybody's cared for. And Stephen would be one of the guys that would kind of bubble to the top that the church says we want him to be one of those seven guys. And what makes the the attitude and the personality of Stephen so influential to, to to the spread of the gospel is that principle that he lives by here that let me tell you something this is you want to know what the the anthem of the, the christian life is about it's it 's what, it's what the, the the anthem that that Stephen lived by, and it was this it 's not about me it 's not about me so i don 't know if you 've ever had the The daunting task of trying to write a a, a biography about, like an autobiography, just like a short little snippet about who you are and what you do, and it kind of feels like you're having to put your credentials down on paper and kind of prove your worth, and here's my pedigree. It's the worst experience ever. I don't know if you ever had to go through that, but it's terrible, Uh, especially when you're trying to be mindful of Christianity and how a Christian's supposed to, like, it's not about self-promotion. It's not about anything about me at all, and that was the attitude that Stephen had. That was the attitude of the early church. So you want to know how the early church gained so much momentum, had so much influence, and grew so fast? Is because they didn't make it about them. They didn't make it about them. In verse 7, where we left off a, a couple of weeks ago, it said, "...and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem." Now, that, you're going to see that play out over and over and over in the book of Acts. You're going to see, and, and the, their number grew, like, like the, 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 the word of God continues to increase, and because of the word of God continuing to increase, people are, be, are just, the, the number is multiplying. And it would say, in the rest of that verse, "...a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." So why the specific mention of priests? Why here, if there are a great number of people who are placing their faith in Jesus, and a multitude of people, greatly greatly increasing in number, people from all over the place are, are, are joining this movement or putting their faith in Jesus, and the priests are too. Like it's, it's very odd that he would just kind of put his finger on that and say, the priests are also placing their faith because... Here's what's going on. You know, you know whose job it was to to care for the needy, right? You know who the job you know who it was in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, it was the responsibility of the priest to make sure that the, the, the needy were cared for and that the widows were cared for. And now, what you see here, uh, as as priests had this job, you had the, now you have this entire community of people who are just kind of picking up the ball and going with it. Like they are they are loving their their community. They're they're caring for those in need. They're serving the widows and they're serving. The the orphans and they're, they're loving their community and providing need. You have this entire community and here you have these priests who are sitting there like there's two, two big things that are going on here, right? The priests were also responsible for the sacrifices, and if you have upwards of ten to 15,000 people in just a couple of months who's no longer even coming to the temple, their, their ultimate sacrifice has, has now been ascended into heaven, right? And so they don't have to go through these rituals anymore. And they're picking up the, the, the responsibilities, the other responsibilities of the priests, like caring for the widows and caring for the orphans and making sure that the needy are, are, are cared for. Well, the priests are just kind of sitting there. And they begin to see what's going on, and they begin to hear this message of Jesus. And it would say here that a great many of them became obedient to the faith, that, that the priests joined into this movement. And these Jewish priests, they had previously been very antagonistic um, toward Jesus, right? You just remember that. As he was kind of on trial and now here they are they've gone from being antagonizers of Jesus to followers of Jesus They they believe on Jesus and they and they didn't get here. Listen, this is very important. They didn't get here by some Apologetic speech or, or some profound sermon. That's not how they arrived at putting their faith in Jesus You know how they arrived at putting their faith in Jesus like watching this community of people do life and hearing the gospel preached as they lived it out. They see, they see where this community of people are, are acting like priests. Like they're doing priest things. They're serving those in need and, and, and they're, they're just loving on their community. And, and so they, they, they didn't get there by some uh, great profound theological discussion. They got there because people were loving Jesus and they were loving their neighbors. And so what caused them to stop and consider the gospel was witnessing this community of Jesus followers, of seeing them um, just kind of take care of those needs around them, kind of, kind of to love on them. And in verse 8, Stephen would come up specifically. He, he was mentioned among the seven just a few verses before, and now he would come up specifically and it would say, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great, th- great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. It was probably a, a synagogue of, a a mixture of slaves who had been free. uh, And that's kind of was their collection of, of, of religion right there. And of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So, um, evidently Stephen had actually been more than just part of caring for the widows. Um, this verse would tell us that he would, he would grow in the knowledge and the faith of of God. And he, he became full of grace and, and began, became full of power and began to do great signs and great wonders. Um, um, and so Stephen was becoming very, very influential in the role that uh, he was appointed to to serve in. And he had begun to do all these miracles enough to stir up uh, enough discussion that his ticket's going to get pulled. Just like Peter's and John's and those guys were getting pulled just a couple of couple of chapters back. We've got to have a discussion with this guy. We've got to shut this guy down. He's saying things that are just out of line. And what, they, what we'll learn in our passage today, uh, there was two accusations that was made against Stephen whenever they rose up to dispute against him. They said he's attacking the temple and he's attacking the law. He said those two things, that's what, he's, that's what he's going over, going after. And you and I might look at that and we might not think that's a very big deal. It might be like, we might consider it like you know what, somebody's talking about our building. You know, they, they drive by and they say that it's just kind of mediocre and it's just not like beautiful and we don't have, you know, the, the stained glass is kind of out of style. And, and so we might hear it like that, like somebody, and you're like, what's the big deal? Who cares? You know? Um, and so why are they getting all upset about it? why are they Why are they getting so angry about him talking about the temple but but in jewish life um, the temple and the law were the two greatest symbols of of national and religious identity like those were the those were the pinnacles of their their nationality and and their religious identity um, and so when you would go after them i want you to think american flag like you get upset when someone dishonors the, the American flag or the Constitution or the White House or the U.S. Capitol or Liberty Bell. You think about those, those icons that define, that tell the story of the American people, and when someone disrespects that, when someone says something against that, when someone doesn't bow down to that as their God, you become offended. I become offended because that's a sign of national zeal, and, and that's just kind of who we are, and that's how we identify ourselves. And so when Peter would say things about the temple and say things about the law, that's why they would get angry. Because it was more than just kind of this location, this place, this building. It was actually a a sign of national identity. It's who we are. It's, It's who we are as a people. It tells us who we are. It's our story. And so we have Stephen accused of this, speaking against the temple, saying, hey, man, it's no longer needed. Like, the temple is no longer needed for the people to meet with God. And so they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Verse 10 of chapter 6, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. There's those two accusations. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so what do you do if you can't beat someone in an open debate? You you attack the person, You go after the person individually. It happens all the time. If I can't outsmart you, if I can't prove you wrong, well, I'm just going to kind of come from the side and I'm going to call, I'm going to, I'm going to attack you from the side. I'm going to do something else. To, to attack you as a person and if you can't withstand the wisdom of another person well we'll just call you a heretic or we'll just call you biblically ignorant and it's going to send the conversation kind of out in left field and we'll forget all about what we're talking about here and we'll kind of be on a whole different argument and so these, these attacks, this would, this, these, these, these accusations that are made against him would, would provoke his response it was Stephen's response and it's interesting to point out that of all the sermons and all the speeches throughout the book of Acts this one's the longest This is the longest speech given. Uh, If you look at all of Peter and John's sermons and all of their speeches, uh, Stephen gets um, the longest section. And isn't it interesting to point out here um, that the most revered holy men in the New Testament, um, like these guys Peter and John and Paul, uh, they don't get this much airtime, but a layperson does. I think that's really cool that God did that for us. He said, you, you know what? Every single person in the room has got a voice. Every single person in the room knows the truth. And every single person is, who's filled with the Spirit has the ability and the privilege to share the truth, right? And, and, and you have that. And so I love that. And on the surface, uh, Stephen, he's not going to do anything but present a, a history lesson to him. He's just, going to talk. he's just going to remind them of what they already know. And that's from week to week. What we do up here is not come up here and teach you something new, but remind you of what you already know. And that's what Stephen's going to do. He'll do the same thing. He's going to bring up Abraham. He's going to talk about that, that, that pinnacle of their, their heritage and their family. And then he's going to kind of go down the line. And he's going to talk about Joseph. And then he's going to bring up Moses. And then he's going to bring up the kings and the leaders who, who were involved with building the temple. And, and so uh, remind Reminder of their their heritage a reminder of their history would oddly enough provoke them to anger Like if I was to sit down here and just kind of tell you about your history about how this country was formed and things like that uh, Would you get angry? Would you get mad about it because that's what happened here um, and I was thinking about this um, I've, i heard this uh, illustration given before and it's just it's really kind of relevant anytime you think about uh, religion in general Um, There was this. It was it was Thanksgiving, and and there was this this wife who was in the kitchen, and and her her husband was in there helping her prepare a meal. And a lot of you probably heard me use this illustration before. Uh, she was going to cook a roast, and so she took the roast out, and then she washed it all down, and she trimmed it up, and she seasoned it up real good. And right before she puts it in the pan to put it in the oven, she takes a big chunk off of one side of it, off the end of it here, and then she cuts the other side off right there and moves those two pieces off. And so she's got a big middle piece of the, of the, of the roast, and she puts it in the pan and covers it up. And, and her husband's sitting there just kind of watching the whole thing go down, and he's like, what in the world did you just do? Like, why did you, why did you cut the ends off of that roast? and and do that. And she's like, I, I don't know. My mom, that's how my mom always she taught me how to do this. She taught me how to cook the roast and that's what she taught me. And so he's like, well, I want to know. I want to know what happened. And so they called mom in the room. Mom, why do we do this? Like, why do we cut the ends off of the the roast to 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 cook it like this? And she was like, oh, your grandma taught me how to do it like that. I, I think it's just some way that you know, that's how you that's how that, you cook that roast the best. You know, you got to take those ends off right there. And so they finally called Grandma in the room, Grandma, why are we doing this? And she was like, I don't know why you're doing that. I did it because my pan was too small. You know, and so I think about that that illustration, and and you know, he reminds them of their history, and he reminds them of their heritage. Like here's here's how all of this thing, stuff was born. Like here's why you do why you do the things you do. And they were kind of getting enraged. Why were they getting so mad? Because he's basically telling them. He, Stephen's pointing out that hey, you don't even understand your own story. Like you're over here guarding the law and guarding the temple, and you forgot the whole story. Like you been taught that that's that's what's important. And so they've become like enraged and and here Stephen is saying like dude you've completely missed the point of the entire Old Testament. And so many of you, you might be in the same predicament, right? You had this thought, you had this idea, you had this vision about this is the way things are going to be figured out in my life, here's how things are going to roll, here's how things are going to roll here, and you know how all this is going to play out, and you've got a plan, and, 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 and you're kind of in this, in this place now that you're in this predicament because God might have had different plans for your life. Or you might have misunderstood God when you kind of first leaned into who Jesus is, and you're like, I think that you know God. What God wants to do is He wants He wants me to follow Him so that He can bless me with the, a lot of material things, a lot of good things in my life. And when you realize that maybe that's not what His plan was, you're kind of unsure what to do and, and where you are, and it's kind of playing out, and you're sitting in this place of chaos, and you're sitting in this place of of confusion and anger because you're not quite sure what God's doing and what His plan plans are. And so Stephen, he's going to have this tough talk with these guys. He said, I'm going to talk to you about these. I want to to, to enlighten you about these things. And and I know that it it won't be what you want to hear, but it's what you need to hear. And that's what the gospel does for us, right? It doesn't give us what we want to hear. It, It tells us what we need to hear if we're being true to the gospel. And that's what he would do. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read his speech. The longest speech uh, in the book of Acts uh, starts in chapter 7 and verse 2. This is his response to the accusations that they would make that, hey, dude, you're coming against the temple and you're coming against the law, and uh, that's not cool. And so he would explain it and respond this way. In verse 2, chapter 7, we'll read to verse 50. Brothers and fathers, hear me. and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave, them, he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the, tw- and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household." He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. But as the time of the the promise drew near which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers and children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why are you wrong? Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will, who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out in the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hand. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years of the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up to the you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, and, and the images that you made. To Worship, and I will send you to exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he was just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed, dispossessed the nations that God drove out before their, our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? That's a lot of words, but let me tell you something. You just got an an entire snapshot of the Old Testament. And that's exactly what Stephen was after. Because everything that these guys had their their hope and their trust in, that's what they were referring to. Like, we get our zeal. We get our passion. We get our right to sit here and accuse you because of what we know in the Old Testament. And Stephen would say, you think so? Let me share with you the Old Testament. Let me give you a recap. Let me remind you uh, of what went on. And so he wants to talk about it. He's going to say, I want to talk about it. You want to talk about the Old Testament? You want to talk about the temple? Let's talk about the temple. Let me tell you what's going on in the temple. And he would run through that whole history of, of the Old Testament. And in general, this temple, just in general, any temple is just considered a place where you meet with God. It's a place to, 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 to meet up with God. And in the Old Testament, the temple layout was it was such where it was just the, the, the Gentile courts, which is kind of along the outside walls of this place. Uh, and then you could enter in from there. And then there were the outer courts. And so as you moved further and further in, you... You would go from the Gentile courts into the outer courts, and this is the, this was the place where where Jesus would kind of go in and find a bunch of money changers uh, selling uh, sacrifices and things like that, and he would kind of lose his mind because that was not a place for that to take place. But it was a place for people to come in and, and experience God. And so as you would the the the, the temple would have this outer court where, where it would, the Gentiles were outside of that, and inside inside this court, the the outer court would be where the, where the women would be able to come because in that culture and even today in that Culture, uh, uh, the, the women are kind of second class, almost. Right? It's kind of like you're not, you're, you're, you know, we're, you're under the men, and so uh, you sit in the outer courts. You don't get to come as close. And then we go into the inner courts, and this is where the Israelite men and the priests would be would be able to come in for worship. This is where it would happen, right? And then you would go into there, and and, and beyond the, the the inner court was the holy place, and the holy place was where the priest alone would be able to go in and make sacrifices, daily sacrifices. For the people. And then inside the the holy place is the holy of holies. And that's the place where the high priest for that year was only able to go in there once a year for uh, the atonement of Israel's sin. And so the temple is laid out in this way where you, you just naturally see, like, I'm over here and I want to be over there, right? That's how it's laid out. And that's how it is just in general. Like, if you're, if you're playing a sport that's, that's uh, competitive, that's not just, like, for fun, like we go play softball in the afternoons, but, like, you're really, like, trying to win something. When you put a team together, you're not looking for the people that's kind of just, you know, showing up and they don't really have cleats. Like, you're looking for the guy who's out there and he's aggressive and you can tell that he and if I'm if I'm one of those guys I want to be on the good team like I want to get to that point I want to if I'm if I'm here to be competitive I want to get to that place and so the temple was this this glaring reality that we all have this desire to get in we all have this desire to be included and and so it was set up in a way where you're good enough to come to this spot and you you're good enough to come to this spot and by the time you get to the place where everybody wants to be, there's hardly anybody who can get there. And that's how the temple was laid out. It's, it's, it's to get near. Like we, That's what we want. We don't want to be so far off. I want to be in the holy of holies. I want to be in the place where God's presence is, where everything is right and where everything is restored. That's where I want to be. That's where like, We're wired that way. We desire that. That's what we want. And hardly anybody could get there because there's this just stinging indictment on every one of us that we're not good enough to make it there. That we can't get there. Because there's something broken in us, there's something messed up in us, and, and at best we can we can get close, to, you know, but we can't we can't get to the place where we desire. And so it's this this declaration that we all want in, but we're all cut off. We all want in, but we can't get there. That we've been excluded. That we've been pushed away from this place. And Stephen's trying to make these guys see. That the temple is not a box that contains God. And you guys are kind of, you, you're kind of keeping it like that. And you're kind of honoring it like that's the place where God lives. And so you can't talk bad about that because that's where God lives. That's his place. And Stephen's trying to say, God's not confined to a box. God's not confined to this one building and in these one walls. And that's what he's trying to tell them. Abraham, Moses, Joseph, David, all these guys were walking with God. And there was no temple. God was with them where they were because God chose to be with them where they were. And God was successful in being with them. And He was successful in leading them even before a temple existed. God can do what He wants. And that's what Stephen's trying to say. And in verse 48, it says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophets say. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In other words, do you think God can be contained to this little speck in the expanse of the universe? Is that what you guys are trying to tell me right now? And so we're going to defend that, that God is only in this place right here? And we... We all want in, and that's what makes the gospel such good news. Like, we all have this desire to be in, to be included, to get there, to be in that place, and that's what makes the gospel such good news, because that is the only way. That is the only way in. Jesus went into the Holy of Holies. He went into that place with God, made the ultimate sacrifice, and on the way out, he destroyed the veil, the barrier that separated us from the Holy of Holies. He tore that dude down on his way out. And so now we can go to God. And so in this day, every religion, right, it had its own... similar ways of practicing worship, right? And so if you, were, uh, if you were a Christian in this time and you had a, a pagan neighbor, uh, you and uh, your pagan neighbor would come up to you and, and say, hey man, I, you know, I hear you're a Christian and everything, so like, you know, um, you know like, where's y'all's temple located? And if you were a Christian, you'd be like, well, we don't, we don't have a temple. Like... <coughs> Jesus is, is our, our temple. Like, we don't, he's our access to God. He is our, he is our place to dwell in God's presence. So, we don't, we don't have a temple. Okay, well, like, where did the priests do their work? Like, where do they, where do they do their priestly things? Like, what, oh, we, we don't, we don't have priests either. Like, Jesus is, he's our, he's our high priest. Like, he's, he's done the work. Where do you like? Where do you do sacrifices? Like, how do you, how do you guys take care of that issue? Well, we don't, we don't do sacrifices. Well, Jesus is—he was our ultimate sacrifice. So we don't have a temple. We don't have priests, and we don't have sacrifices. And so your pagan neighbor—he's left with one question, right? What kind of religion is this? Because this is how religion is. The world tells you this is how religion is. Look at every other religion and there's some form of temple and some form of priest or leader and there's some form of sacrifice and a sacrificial system. So what kind of religion do you call this? And the right answer is it's no religion at all. That's that's Christianity. It's no religion at all because religion says I do these things. I adhere to these things. Therefore, I am. I am included. I'm in that place now because of these things that I've done. I go to this place. I recite these words. I act this way. I, I say these things and I, I do these deeds. And that's what. So, so therefore, I am right. And what makes the gospel altogether different is that it says I am in Christ. Like Christ is. Uh, I, that's who I am. That's my identity. That's who who I am. Therefore, I do like. Everything that I'm doing is working itself out based on who Christ is in me. Jesus went to this place. Jesus did all, and said all the right things, and he acted all the right ways, and he checked off all the boxes. And so we're in him. We walk in him. And so that's what Christianity is, and that's what makes it different from religion in general, is that it doesn't make any sixth sense to religious people, right? It doesn't. Like If they understand that, it's like we sit here and tell them that we don't have a temple. This is not a, a holy place, right? This, is, this, this building is, is, no, is nothing like we walk out of here and pagans can just exist in here. They're just just the same. It's not a holy place. It's just a place where people are meeting. What's a holy place is this gathering of people. And so we can go out in the parking lot and that's where Jesus is. That's where, that's where he dwells is among these people, right? And wherever we go, that's, that's, how, that's how Christianity works. And this is Stephen's response to them about the temple. He said, you can't restrict God to a box. You can't put him in this box because of Jesus. And, and, and because of Jesus, you don't have to try to put him in a box anymore right because Jesus Jesus has now kind of blown that whole idea out of the water and so that's that's what I gotta say about your temple. Now let's talk about the law. Okay, so you've made an accusation that something about the temple and, and how it's a holy revered place and that's just kind of the reality is the gospel kind of really kinda of washes that out of the way. Now let's talk about the law. You say that 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 you have this law and this and this and this law is good and it's and it's and and, and you, you you adhere by it and that's what saves you. And, and that's, a, that's a problem. And he would say in verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So you have the law, but you don't obey the law. You don't follow the law. And you want to sit there and hold it as sacred, and it's something that I can't even speak against, and you jokers can't even keep it. Your fathers couldn't either. And in verse 43, he said, You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan. And these, these images that you made to worship. And in verse 53, it would say, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Sure, you have the law. Sure, you have the law, but you haven't obeyed the law. Sure, you have this law, but you've given yourself over to idolatry. Every single one of you, sure, you have the law, but what you desperately need is a new heart. That's what you need, and only Jesus can do that for you. Only Jesus can give you a new heart. The law can't do that for you. The temple can't do that for you. The priest, the professional holy man, those guys can't do it for you. Only Jesus can can do that, and you know what the law does for us Right? You know that. Like it points to the very reality that every single one of us, every one of us, are hungry for a verdict in our lives. Like that's what the law does for us. It it, it just kind of surfaces that. Like think about it, even good or bad. If 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 you have little ones who are uh, who are able to kind of get around on their own now and do things on their own, um, you, you've probably experienced this. Where hey, uh, mom, dad, watch me do this, and they'll kind of do whatever it is that they're wanting to try to impress you with, and and what they're looking for is is some some. Good job, buddy. You really did really good with that. That was awesome. Like, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a verdict, right? They're looking for, I'm doing this thing right. I'm good. I'm better. Like, I'm, I'm something. I'm awesome. And so that's, that's what we're looking for. And when, what Stephen's trying to, to get through to these guys is, is that Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And no one else has. So you wanna you wanna you wanna revere this word, you wanna hold this word as holy, just know that there was only one man who has ever in the history of the law been able to keep it. And it's been Jesus. And now his verdict can be your verdict. Like because of because he, he was the only one that kept it, and and the father said, approved. Well done. Then that verdict can now become your verdict and it can become the verdict of these men who are making these accusations. And Stephen, um, he would wrap up every speech, his speech like every other's, with just these huge words of encouragement. He'd say, you stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That's a good way to kind of get an invitation. Going like, If we want to do like an altar call, it's like start calling you names and telling you uh, like how you're you're sinning and things like that. Um, But it didn't work for Stephen. Um, It says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So you, you, know, you, you, want, you want to refer to these guys who are our forefathers and they're just so awesome. Every single one of them persecuted the prophets. Every messenger of God that came, they were persecuted. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Again, some good invitation uh, talks right there. Uh, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, obviously, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. I don't know what, I mean, we should probably try to start doing that when we get mad at people. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means, but they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So you see once again this image uh, of the priesthood emerges once again. You see it right there. Recall that it was only the high priest who once a year was able to go into the presence of God. No one else was allowed there. And here Stephen is, not a priest, not an apostle, just a normal Christian. Just a normal guy, a normal follower of Jesus who has direct access to God. Has direct access to Him. And we find ourselves at the only place in all of Scripture. Where beyond the beyond the new, in the New Testament, where Jesus is described as standing after the ascension, every other place where Jesus is described, he's sitting, and here he's described as standing because see Stephen, he's on trial. Stephen's on trial with these men, and he's sitting here, and he's waiting for his verdict. He's, he's heard the accusations, he's provided his defense, and now it's time uh, for the verdict. And he has this vision of this heavenly courtroom. Uh, Jesus is standing there next to the Father, and it's, and it's almost to give the picture that there's a heavenly courtroom that's, o- that's in session over this earthly courtroom. Like, there's a lot of things happening. There's going to be a lot of judgment passed down here, but the final judgment is here. And that's the picture that Stephen is, is, is being given, this vision that he's given right here. And this is why in verse 15 it would say, his face was lit up like the, like, like, a, like an angel because he was sitting in the presence of God. So you want to know the, the boldness and the courage that Stephen has? You want to know you want, to, you want to know how to have that kind of boldness? How did he get that kind of boldness? He got it because he knows that there's a higher court. He got it because he knows that there's a more prominent judge on the bench. He, he has that kind of courage and that kind of boldness because he knows that Jesus is presiding over the, over the story. He, Jesus is presiding over, the, over the, the discussion that's going on in the courtroom. That there's a higher court. And in verse 57, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's a little bit of a strange detail. That's, that's kind of strange. Like they got mad, they rushed him, and that's where they dropped their clothes off kind of out of order, but um, we'll get a little bit more intimate picture um, of this guy in just a couple of chapters when he meets Jesus in another life-altering way, but you'll know that that's, that's Paul. That's the Apostle Paul there before he met Jesus, and I want to stop and mention it right here. That this event is going down, that's going down right here, is going to, be a, it's going to play a major role in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. This event that's going on right here. And, and I think it's why Luke just kind of drops it there too. It's not, that's, not, that's not the laundromat. That's not whether they're just dropping their clothes off there. But they dropped their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was there. Saul was witnessing these proceedings. He was witnessing these conversations. He was listening to what Stephen had to say. In verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So if, if you and I see what Stephen saw, if you and I are able to get that vision that the door of heaven is open, if you are not, if you and I are able to see that that Jesus is in a place of intercession on our behalf, that He's standing and and He is He is in the heavenly courtroom, He and He is presiding over all of the things that are happening in your life and everything that the enemy is accusing you of right now and everything else that Stephen would have to go through in this moment. Jesus, knowing that he, he, you can see that, if you get that vision, that God the Father who sent Jesus to rescue us actually has the final say. If we can believe that, if we can see that and get that, then we can have this kind of boldness that Stephen has. Like, that's where our boldness and our courage can come from, is knowing that you guys might all have an opinion of me, but there's a much higher opinion of me in Christ Jesus. So, that gives me boldness and that gives me courage and that gives me wisdom and that gives me compassion when I'm not supposed to have it. In my nature and in my heart, I just don't have those things. But in Christ, I can have those things and we can accomplish what Stephen accomplished. We can be be Stephen, knowing what we see uh, his vi- the vision that he got God if we can get that same vision if we can believe that same thing that he believed that that Jesus Christ is Lord over us and that he has the final say then we can be a witness like Stephen can be a witness like we can be bold we can we can proclaim uh, uh, wonderful things and we can do mighty works in Christ's name and we can be a servant like he was a servant he was he was one of seven guys out of a multitude of people who the church said that guy has what it takes to serve and we We want him. You can be a servant like that too. And I can too. And we can be full of grace and we can be full of power like Stephen was if we know what we know about Jesus and believe that doing great wonders and doing great signs among the people to the glory of God. And and the name of Jesus would absolutely sweep through these neighborhoods like it did in Jerusalem if we believe that. The way the church grew and the way the church expanded and and the way it did was because of the profile that we see of of Stephen here, but he was just one of many in the church who had this same character, who had this same boldness and same courage and had the same vision of what he saw in heaven that there is nothing that can separate me from Christ, not a thing. And so that's what grew the early church. And you want to know what changes this community? You want to know what changes this neighborhood? It's to be able to see Jesus for who he is. what he said about you know what he's spoken into your story know what he's he's claiming over you knowing that he has the final say and walking in that boldness and that courage and that compassion and in that wisdom and sometimes sometimes God will call us to martyrdom sometimes he will do that Stephen did everything right didn't he I mean, he did everything right. He said all the right things. He was a faithful follower of Jesus. He was committed to the body of Christ. He boldly proclaimed the truth of who God was, but he still ended up dead. They still stoned him to death. Now, I I don't know why, other than maybe that there was this young man who was there. Maybe there was this guy who was there while every stone is smashed into the face of Stephen. As Stephen lay bloody and mangled, this young guy who's sitting there watching this hears his pleas for the forgiveness of his persecutors. Maybe maybe that's why. Maybe that's why Stephen had to die. So we exist to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus, Jesus, even if reflecting him means we suffer with him, means we hurt with him. That we reflect Him in those ways as well. Not just reflect Him in power and not just reflect Him in grace and not just reflect Him in compassion, but reflect Him in hardships and persecution and famine and nakedness and hardships and trials and suffering. And even if it calls us to be martyred for our faith. So when we say reflect Jesus, we mean all of Jesus. Every part of who He is and what He endured. That's what Stephen was doing here. He was, he was reflecting Jesus. And Saul got to witness something that he never saw before. He got to see Jesus. And that changed everything for him. That would set the, the ball in motion for Saul to have this meeting with Jesus and just kind of fall head over heels for Jesus. This is, was going to be the moment that kind of kicked all of that off. And the, and the truth of the matter is, While God can absolutely call some of us to martyrdom, it's likely that most of us may or may not be. Maybe only some of us will. Maybe none of us will. But we're all called to live for Him. Every single one of us. We're to live for Christ. And so what are you living for? Do you ask yourself the question, What in the world happened in the New Testament church that made it so effective? And and, and can we be a New Testament church, Blake? We We want to be part of something that looks just like the New Testament church. Then you need to receive what Jesus has done for you individually and for us as a church and be willing to give your life away for that. You want to be a New Testament church? God may call us to martyrdom. He may call us to, to great compassion and good works, uh, and, and that's fine too. We'll, we'll take that too, but just let's not, let's not reflect some of Jesus. Let's be willing and let's be ready to reflect all of Jesus. The verdict has been handed down. And so it's just for us to believe. Believe that Jesus has the final say. Believe that Jesus has given his life so that you may live. That's the... That's the response for today. That's that's our response. Is do you do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has the final say and do you believe that in Christ you have all the power, all the boldness, all the courage that that you need and that I need and that we need to to absolutely change this neighborhood for Jesus and change the nations for Jesus. It starts with believing. Not believe believing in Christ. I don't know how much more simple I can make that. And so this is, this is the moment and this is the response and that's the invitation. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be uncircumcised in your heart. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be bull-headed. And don't hold on to some crazy heritage that you don't even know why you hold on to it. But come to Jesus and believe on Jesus for life. So would you pray with me?